Chapter One of The Doctor's Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Weber. The Doctor's Wife by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter One A Young Man from the Country. There were two surgeons in the little town of Greybridge-on-the-Wavern, in pretty pastoral Midlandshire. Mr. Polkett, who lived in a big, new, brazen-faced house in the middle of the queer old high street, and John Gilbert, the parish doctor, who lived in his own house on the outskirts of Greybridge, and worked very hard for a smaller income than that which the stylish Mr. Polkett derived from his aristocratic patients. John Gilbert was an elderly man, with a young son. He had married late in life, and his wife had died very soon after the birth of this son. It was for this reason, most likely, that the surgeon loved his child, as children are rarely loved by their fathers, with an earnest, over-anxious devotion, which from the very first had something womanly in its character, and which grew with the child's growth. Mr. Gilbert's mind was narrowed by the circle in which he lived. He had inherited his own patients and the parish patients from his father, who had been a surgeon before him, and who had lived in the same house with the same red lamp over the little old-fashioned surgery door for eight-and-forty years, and had died, leaving the house, the practice, and the red lamp to his son. If John Gilbert's only child had possessed the capacity of a Newton or the aspirations of a Napoleon, the surgeon would nevertheless have shut him up in the surgery to compound aloes and conserve of roses, tincture of rhubarb, and essence of peppermint. Luckily for the boy, he was only a commonplace lad with a good-looking, rosy face, clear gray eyes which stared at you frankly, and a thick stubble of brown hair, parted in the middle and waving from the roots. He was a tall, straight, and muscular boy, a good runner, a first-rate cricketer, tolerably skilful with a pair of boxing gloves or single sticks, and a decent shot. He wrote a fair business-like hand, was an excellent arithmetician, remembered a smattering of Latin, a random line here and there from those Roman poets and philosophers whose writings had been his torment at a certain classical and commercial academy at Wareham. He spoke and wrote tolerable English. He had read Shakespeare and Sir Walter Scott, and infinitely preferred the latter, though he made a point of skipping the first few chapters of the great novelist's fictions in order to get at once to the action of the story. He was a very good young man, went to church two or three times on a Sunday, and would on no account have broken any one of the Ten Commandments on the painted tablets above the altar by so much as a thought. He was very good, and, above all, he was very good-looking. No one had ever disputed this fact. George Gilbert was eminently good-looking. No one had ever gone so far as to call him handsome, no one had ever presumed to designate him plain. He had those homely, healthy good looks, which the novelist or poet in search of a hero would recoil from with actual horror, and which the practical mind involuntarily associates with tenant-farming in a small way, or the sale of butcher's meat. 
I will not say that poor George was ungentlemanly, because he had kind, cordial manners, and a certain instinctive Christianity, which had never yet expressed itself in any tangible form, but which lent a genial flavour to every word upon his lips, to every thought in his heart. He was a very trusting young man, and thought well of all mankind. He was a Tory, heart and soul, as his father and grandfather had been before him, and thought especially well of all the magnates around about Wareham and Greybridge, holding the grand names that had been familiar to him from his childhood in a simple reverence that was without a thought of meanness. He was a candid, honest, country-bred young man, who did his duty well, and filled a small place in a very narrow circle with credit to himself and the father who loved him. The fiery ordeal of two years' student life at St. Bartholomew's had left the lad almost as innocent as a girl, for John Gilbert had planted his son during these two awful years in the heart of a quiet Wesleyan family in the Seven Sisters Road, and the boy had enjoyed very little leisure for disporting himself with the dangerous spirits of St. Bartholomew's. George Gilbert was two-and-twenty, and in all the course of those two-and-twenty years which made the sum of the young man's life, his father had never had reason to reproach him by so much as a look. The young doctor was held to be a model youth in the town of Greybridge, and it was whispered that if he should presume to lift his eyes to Miss Sophronia Burdock, the second daughter of the rich maltster, he need not aspire in vain. But George was by no means a coxcomb, and didn't particularly admire Miss Burdock, whose eyelashes were a good deal paler than her hair, and whose eyebrows were only visible in a strong light. The surgeon was young, and all the world was before him. But he was not ambitious. He felt no sense of oppression in the narrow high street at Greybridge. He could sit in the little parlour next to the surgery reading Byron's fiercest poems, sympathising in his own way with the jowers and corsairs, but with no passionate yearning stirring up in his breast, with no thought of revolt against the dull quiet of his life. George Gilbert took his life as he found it, and had no wish to make it better. To him, Greybridge on the Wavern was all the world. He had been in London, and had felt a provincial's brief sense of surprised delight in the thronged streets, the clamour and the bustle, but he had very soon discovered that the great metropolis was a dirty and disreputable place, as compared to Greybridge on the Wavern, where you might have taken your dinner comfortably off any doorstep, as far as the matter of cleanliness is concerned. The young man was more than satisfied with his life. He was pleased with it. He was pleased to think that he was to be his father's partner, and was to live and marry, and have children and die at last, in the familiar rooms in which he had been born. His nature was very adhesive, and he loved the things he had long known, because they were old and familiar to him, rather than for any merit or beauty in the things themselves. The 20th of July, 1852, was a very great day for George Gilbert, and indeed for the town of Greybridge generally, for on that day an excursion train left Wareham for London, conveying such roving spirits as cared to pay a week's visit to the great metropolis upon very moderate terms. 
George had a week's holiday, which he was to spend with an old schoolfellow who had turned author, and had chambers in the temple, but who boarded and lodged with a family at Camberwell. The young surgeon left Greybridge in the maltster's carriage at eight o'clock upon that bright summer morning, in company with Miss Burdock and her sister Sophronia, who were going up to London on a visit to an aristocratic aunt in Baker Street, and who had been confided to George's care during the journey. The young ladies and their attendant squire were in very high spirits. London, when your time is spent between St. Bartholomew's Hospital and the Seven Sisters Road, is not the most delightful city in the world, but London, when you are a young man from the country with a week's holiday and a five-pound note and some odd silver in your pocket, assumes quite another aspect. George was not enthusiastic, but he looked forward to his holiday with a placid sense of pleasure, and listened with untiring good humour to the conversation of the maltster's daughters, who gave him a good deal of information about their aunt in Baker Street, and the brilliant parties given by that lady and her acquaintance. But amiable as the young ladies were, George was glad when the Midlandshire train steamed into the Euston terminus, and his charge was ended. He handed the Mrs. Burdock to a portly and rather pompous lady, who had a Clarence and pair waiting for her, and who thanked him with supreme condescension for his care of her nieces. She even went so far as to ask him to call in Baker Street during his stay in London, at which Sophronia blushed. But, unhappily, Sophronia did not blush prettily. A faint, patchy red broke out all over her face, even where her eyebrows ought to have been, and was a long time dispersing. If the blush had been beauty's bright, transient glow, as brief as summer lightning in a sunset sky, George Gilbert could scarcely have been blind to its flattering import. But he looked at the young lady's emotion from a professional point of view, and mistook it for indigestion. "'You're very kind, ma'am,' he said, "'but I'm going to stay at Camberwell. "'I don't think I shall have time to call in Baker Street.' "'The carriage drove away, and George took his portmanteau "'and went to find a cab. "'He hailed a hansom, and he felt, as he stepped into it, "'that he was doing a dreadful thing, "'which would tell against him in Greybridge "'if by any evil chance it should become known "'that he had ridden in that disreputable vehicle.' He thought the horse had a rakish, unkempt look about the head and mane, like an animal who was accustomed to night-work and indifferent as to his appearance during the day. George was not used to riding in hansoms, so instead of balancing himself upon the step for a moment while he gave his orders to the charioteer, he settled himself comfortably inside, and was a little startled when a hoarse voice at the back of his head demanded, "'Where to, sir?' and suggested the momentary idea that he was breaking out into involuntary ventriloquism. "'The Temple, driver, the Temple, in Fleet Street,' Mr. Gilbert said politely. The man banged down a little trap-door and rattled off eastwards. I am afraid to say how much George Gilbert gave the cabman when he was set down at last at the bottom of Chancery Lane, but I think he paid for five miles at eightpence a mile, and a trifle in on account of a blockade at Holborn, and even then the driver did not thank him. 
George was a long time groping about the courts and quadrangles of the temple before he found the place he wanted, though he took a crumpled letter out of his waistcoat pocket and referred to it every now and then when he came to a standstill. Wareham is only a hundred and twenty miles from London, and the excursion train, after stopping at every station on the line, had arrived at the terminus at half-past two o'clock. It was between three and four now, and the sun was shining upon the river, and the flags in the temple were hot under Mr. Gilbert's feet. He was very warm himself, and almost worn out, when he found, at last, the name which he was looking for, painted very high up in white letters upon a black door-post. Fourth floor, Mr. Andrew Morgan, and Mr. Sigismund Smith. It was in the most obscure corner of the dingiest court in the temple that George Gilbert found this name. He climbed a very dirty staircase, thumping the end of his portmanteau upon every step as he went up, until he came to a landing midway between the third and fourth stories. Here he was obliged to stop for sheer want of breath, for he had been lugging the portmanteau about with him throughout his wanderings in the temple, and a good many people had been startled by the aspect of a well-dressed young man carrying his own luggage, and staring at the names of the different rows of houses, the courts, and quadrangles in the grave sanctuary. George Gilbert stopped to take a breath, and he had scarcely done so when he was terrified by the apparition of a very dirty boy, who slid suddenly down the baluster between the floor above and the landing, and alighted face to face with the young surgeon. The boy's face was very black, and he was evidently a child of tender years, something between eleven and twelve, perhaps. But he was in no wise discomfited by the appearance of Mr. Gilbert. He ran upstairs again, and placed himself astride upon the slippery baluster, with a view to another descent, when a door above was suddenly opened, and a voice said, "'You know where Mr. Manders, the artist, lives?' "'Yes, sir. Waterloo Road, sir. Montague Terrace, number two. Then run round to him and tell him the subject for the next illustration in The Smuggler's Bride. A man with his knee upon the chest of another man, and a knife in his hand. You can remember that?' "'Yes, sir. And bring me a proof for chapter fifty-seven. "'Yes, sir.' The door was shut, and the boy ran downstairs, past George Gilbert, as fast as he could go, but the door above was opened again, and the same voice called aloud, "'Tell Mr. Manders the man with the knife in his hand must have on top boots.' "'All right, sir,' the boy called from the bottom of the stairs. George Gilbert went up and knocked at the door above. It was a black door, and the names of Mr. Andrew Morgan and Mr. Sigismund Smith were painted upon it in white letters, as upon the doorpost below.' A pale-faced young man, with a smudge of ink upon the end of his nose, and very dirty wristbands, opened the door. "'Sam! George!' cried the two young men, simultaneously, and then began to shake hands with effusion, as the French playwrights say. "'My dear old George! My dear old Sam! But you call yourself Sigismund now?' "'Yes, Sigismund Smith. It sounds well, doesn't it?' If a man's evil destiny makes him a smith, the least he can do is to take it out in his Christian name. No smith with a grain of spirit would ever consent to be a Samuel. But come in, dear old boy, and put your portmanteau down. Knock those papers off that chair, there by the window. 
Don't be frightened of making a, a muddle. They can't be in a worse muddle than they are now. If you don't mind just amusing yourself with the times for half an hour or so, while I finish this chapter of The Smuggler's Bride, I shall be able to strike work and do whatever you like. But the printer's boy is coming back in half an hour for the end of the chapter. I won't speak a word, George said respectfully. The young man with the smudgy nose was an author, and George Gilbert had an awful sense of the solemnity of his friend's vocation. Right away, my dear Sam, I won't interrupt you. He drew his chair close to the open window and looked down into the court below, where the paint was slowly blistering in the July sun. End of chapter one. Recording by Kirsten Weber.